You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 130. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you informed on my progress as a writing professional. So, let's get started with this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Stave 2 of my Metamore City Christmas story, A Lightbringer Carol. In Stave 1, the Lightbringer Field Commander, Jaina Starson, has a meeting with Mirai Hindana, the last surviving priestess of the Lothanasi and their ceremonial leader. Mirai rarely involves herself in the Order's day-to-day operations, but she's making an exception in this case. The winter solstice is coming, and she wants Janus to take the night off. Janus caused a PR disaster for the Lightbringers two years ago, when he defeated Santa Claus in open combat, and reporters photographed him carrying the Fairy Lord's head back to Lothanasi headquarters. Last year, Santa got his revenge, using his supernatural power to ignore wards and thresholds to launch a direct attack on the Lightbringer's operations center. Mirai is determined to end this feud before it escalates any further, so Janus is suspended from sundown on the long night until sundown on the following day. Janus is visited that evening by Candace, the senior operations officer who monitors all of his missions. Since Janus has the night off, that means she gets to take it off, too. She brings him dinner and a Yule present, a beautiful scarf that she knitted for him. She invites him to come with her tomorrow morning, when she will go ice skating with her brother and his kids, but Janus feels uncomfortable intruding into her private life. Disappointed, Candace tells him, It's not intruding if you're invited. Later that night, Janus is awakened in his quarters by a manifested spirit, which claims to be the ghost of his father, Asariel. Father's ghost tells Janus that he was unable to enter the rest of the realms beyond, because he had become so obsessed with his duty that his spirit became bound to a lemisil, the enchanted sword that Janus himself now carries. The ghost shows Janus the chain that binds him to the weapon and tells Janus that he is forging a chain just like it now. Desperate for his son to escape this fate, Father has made intercession for Janus with the realms beyond. Janus will be haunted by three spirits. Without their help, there is no hope for Janus to escape his fate. Janus pleads with his father to stay, but Alemisil is already drawing the ghost back into the sword. Before he disappears... Asariel tells Janus to look for the first of the three spirits at the hour of one. A Lightbringer Carol A Holiday Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Stave 2 The Ghost of Solstice Past The hour of one approached, and silence reigned in the quarters of Janus Starson. He sat watchfully in the middle of the room, his sword close to hand, all senses attuned for any further sign of supernatural incursion. 
the sword. He wasn't entirely sure he trusted Alemisil at the moment. His wards had shown no sign of disturbance from the outside, so the ghost, whatever it was, must have somehow been inside the room when they were placed. There were few places a spirit could hide from Janus's aura site, but he had to admit that the sword was a possibility. The secrets of its making had been lost long ago, and Alemisil clearly had a will of its own. All the same, it was the best weapon he had for facing down a spirit of darkness. Janus glanced at the intercom again. No help would be coming from that quarter. All of his communications devices had stopped working as soon as the ghost departed. He tried the door, only to find it sealed shut behind another ward, this one facing inward. Someone had taken great pains to trap him here, and whatever power was at work, it far exceeded his own. For now, anyway. The long night was a time of great strength for outsiders, but its power was fragile. As soon as the first light of dawn struck the city, that spell would shatter, and he would be free. All he had to do was watch and wait, and kill anything that tried to come for him in the meantime. Unless, of course, the ghost was telling the truth. Unless his father really was trying to make intercession for him with the realms beyond. Unless these three spirits, whatever they were, really did intend to save him from some kind of eternal prison. Janus clenched his teeth and flexed his hands into fists. Trust not your eyes, he growled. After a moment, he said it again, louder, repeating the old litany from memory. Trust not your eyes. The eyes are the weakness of the flesh. See with the mind which pierces the veils of deception. Trust not your ears. The ears are the weakness of the flesh. Hear with the heart which resonates to the word of truth. Trust not your hands. The hands are the weakness of the flesh. Touch with the soul which is one with the essence of all things. The words rang in the stillness of the room. The clock beeped once as it struck the hour of one. Then, the sword began once more to glow. A valuable lesson! The voice was a strong, clear alto, one used to wielding authority. It came from the sword and echoed far too much for the size of the room, as if the speaker were at the bottom of a well. One of Tessariel's litanies, I believe. She had a fondness for the common tongue. A glowing mist rose up from the sigils on the sword and coalesced into the form of a theriomorph, a tall woman with long black hair and the face of a wolf. She wore the tunic, leather jerkin, and leggings of a medieval scout, but Janus could see the holy symbol of the Lothanasi around her neck. A field medic, then one of the junior priestesses responsible for keeping soldiers alive until they could reach the temple. Her body retained a faint glow, which made her stand out against the darkness of the room, but otherwise she seemed quite solid. Are you the spirit whose coming was foretold to me? Janus asked. The wolf woman snorted, in a way that reminded him uncannily of Mirai. Well, that's a fairly ridiculous question, isn't it? Come now, Janus. How many spirits do you usually have showing up in your bedroom? 
Janus narrowed his eyes. On solstice? I couldn't say. I'm usually working tonight. The spirit grinned at him with a mouthful of very white teeth. So you are. Which brings us to my business here. You make it up if you wish. I'll not harm you. Slowly, Janus rose to his feet. What shall I call you, spirit? The woman's ears pricked forward. Why? Do you expect to believe me? That depends on what you say. The spirit looked amused. Very well, then. My name is Karenna. Janus stared at her. Not only had she given him a name, something no fairy and few outsiders would have done, but it was a name he knew well from the history of the Order. High Priestess Karenna Hin Elric? Marai's guardian? Caller of the Council of Athos? Karenna's ears laid back. Among other things, I confess I didn't expect you to recognize my true name. Most people called me Raven in those days. Janus bowed deeply. Your life and works are a great interest of mine, mistress. It's an honor to be in the presence of one who played such a pivotal role in our history. Karenna made a disgusted sound. I didn't make history. History came down on me like an avalanche, and I did my best not to be crushed by it. Janus nodded thoughtfully. I suppose it would have seemed that way at the time. But you kept the Order alive in our darkest hour. You were faithful to your purpose at a time when everything around you was uncertain. I have always admired you for that. Hmm. Yes, I suppose you would have. She stretched out a hand, palm upward. Walk with me. There's something I must show you. Janus hesitated for a moment, but his supernatural senses gave no hint of darkness around Karenna. He took her hand, finding it cool but solid to the touch. In her other hand, she took up a lemicell, and the elven sigils glowed warmly as she grasped the hilt. She swung the sword through empty air, and the space parted like a curtain before them. Cold winter sunlight streamed into the room beyond, a vaulted hall of plain gray stone. Before the window sat an altar, which bore the twin cross of the Lothanasi and the remains of the dawn sacrifice. This is the old temple at Metamore Keep, Janus said, looking around at the simple torches that lined the walls. He reached out and ran his hand over the stone, felt the texture of it under his fingers. It felt as real as the priestess herself. He went to the window at the back of the hall and looked out at a bright winter's day. The snow-covered rooftops of little cottages, surrounded by a curtain wall of gray stone, all atop a long, sloping rocky ridge that rose in the center of the valley. Beyond the fortress town lay a fertile expanse of farms and fields, nestled between the Dragon Mountains on one side and the Barrier Range on the other. Janus was struck by the tranquil beauty of the place. Metamore City had been a world of glass and steel for the better part of three centuries. The ground was concrete, the creeks and streams were underground, and even the mountains were overshadowed by the towers that rose between them. The rugged gray stronghold where he now stood had become an elegant spire reaching toward heaven, a citadel as modern in its appearance as anything man had built. The memory of this world survived in only a few dozen paintings, and in the minds of the immortals who had been there. 
A shuddering boom rang through the hall behind him. Janus spun into a fighting stance. His hand reached instinctively for his scabbard. Only when his fingers closed on empty air did he remember that Corinna still held the lemisil. The spirit stood off to one side of the hall, watching with interest but not alarm. Sister Raven! A young woman's voice rang through the temple, angry and strangely familiar. It was followed a moment later by the woman herself, a slender feline theriomorph with white robes, white fur, brown hair, and red-brown eyes. Grandmother Mirai, Janus said, staring at this image of the star child in her youth. She couldn't have been more than eighteen. He found himself moving toward her without thinking about it. She cannot hear you, Corinna said. These are only the shadows of things that have been. Watch and listen. Sister Raven, Mirai shouted again. She clutched a scroll in one fist, her claws digging into the heavy parchment. I know you're here! I would speak with you! One of the doors along the side of the hall opened, and another copy of Karenna came forth. This one looked a little older, and a great deal more careworn than the field medic who served as Janus's guide. She wore the white robes of a priestess, like Mirai, and her raven-black hair was developing streaks of gray. She gazed at Mirai calmly, her pale blue eyes bearing no particular expression. Perhaps you could speak a bit more quietly, then, Sister Raven said. Really, Sister Mirai, after being gone more than a year, this is hardly the welcome home I was expecting. Mirai held out the scroll like an accusation. Your work has preceded you, she snarled. Opening the scroll to a place she had marked, she read from it. Whereas the original creative spirit is by necessity numinous and ineffable, and whereas the presence and nature of this spirit exceed the compass of the mortal mind, and whereas the mortal mind in its weakness shall ascribe form to the formless and limits to the limitless, and whereas the mind of our beloved sister, Mariah Hindana of Metamore, had been influenced a priori by the noble but misguided ideals of Patriarch Akabayath of the Ecclesia, may he rest in peace, it is now the declaration of this holy synod that Sister Mirai Hindana, having encountered the true and ineffable presence of the creative spirit on the mountain of the sun, did with all innocence and human frailty perceive this presence as a vision of the teacher Yahshua, whom the followers of the way worship as master and savior of mortal kind. She threw the scroll to the ground, as if she could no longer bear to touch it. Innocence and human frailty. What a fine way to say I'm out of my wits. Mirai, please be reasonable, Raven said. Apparently I can't, can I? Mirai shot back. I've been too influenced by noble but misguided ideals. Raven turned and went over to the altar, coming closer to Janus in the process. She busied herself with cleaning up the remains of the sacrifice the stub of a candle, and a single white dove whose blood had been spilled into the basin. There were those at Athos who were convinced you were a traitor, Raven said. We've hung a lot of traitors over the last two years, Mirai. I'm afraid we've set a bad precedent with it. 
Mirai came up behind her, crossing her arms. Those were Daedra worshippers who were deliberately trying to corrupt the Order. I, Raven said. She was still calm, but there was an edge in her voice now. And after all we sacrificed to root them out, you cast down the gods and rendered the whole matter irrelevant. I know your heart was right, but if you had intended to destroy the Order, you could hardly have done a better job of it. Mirai's tail lashed in agitation. I did what I had to do. And now I have done the same, Raven said. Janus could see that her hands were shaking. Hell speak, Mirai swore. You could have supported me. You could have said I was telling the truth. Raven struck the twin cross in a sudden blow, knocking it off the altar and across the room. Corinna, watching from the sidelines, winced at her show of temper. Raven wheeled on Mirai. And then what? she demanded. We all queue up to be baptized by Father Hoff? Find husbands for us to submit to? Trade our priests' robes for maternity gowns? Of course not, Mirai said. That's all Pyralian rubbish. You're talking about culture, not religion. Religion is culture, Raven snapped. Do you honestly think that you can have their savior and not get their bondage along with him? You naive, ignorant child. Destroy people's religion and you destroy their identity as a people. Did that never occur to you when you were casting our gods to earth? Mirai retreated a step, then another. Raven followed her, clenching her fists like she wanted to strike the woman. You shattered our world, little prophet, and I have spent the last year fighting to salvage something from the wreckage, something that will let us hold our own against Pyralis and the Ecclesia. I could not do that and spare your pride in the bargain. Be grateful that I managed to spare your life. Mirai stared at her for a long moment, her jaw clenched, the tears welling up in her eyes. What is to become of me, then? she asked at last, her voice thick with the emotions she was clearly struggling to contain. Raven's body language softened, as did her voice. You will always have a place here, she said. You will be well cared for. There are many duties at Temple that can still fall under your charge. A muscle jumped in Mirai's jaw. But my visions will be forgotten. Not forgotten, Raven assured her. The Acolytes will record them all most accurately, I promise you. Ignore it, then. The Council of Athos will not acknowledge Eli as creator, or Yashua as his avatar. They will not, Raven agreed. Mirai looked down at the floor for a long moment, seemingly lost in thought. Raven came up and put a hand on her shoulder. I am sorry, Mirai, but mark me. If I do as you ask, our granddaughters will kneel before bishops and serve their husbands like slaves. No vision, no prophecy, no word from on high is worth that. Mirai looked up at her and a fierce new light arose in her eyes. She stepped back, away from Raven. No, she said, quietly but with conviction. You're wrong. We can follow Eli without losing who we are. There's a third way, a better way. She lifted the twin cross of the Lightbringers from around her neck and threw it to Raven.
and if you won't find it with me, then I'll walk it without you. Raven stared at her, aghast. You would forswear your oath to the Order? To me? Mirai turned her back on Raven and began walking toward the exit. You've already forsworn me. I owe you nothing, Madam Lightbringer. The words hit Raven like a physical blow, and Janus could imagine why. Mirai had addressed her like a civilian, not a fellow priestess. And worse, like a stranger. Mirai, please, Raven said. Think for a moment. What do you mean to do? To go and walk in this shattered world you say I've created, Mirai said. To listen. To learn. To help where I can. Until I find the path that will save us. Alone? Raven asked. Mirai half-turned and smiled over her shoulder at her. But it was a worn and weary smile. One that belonged on a much older face. I'm the prophet of Eli. I'm never alone. Then she walked away, and Raven watched her as she left. She never looked back. The image of the temple faded, until Janus and Corenna were once more in his quarters. Corenna slumped in his office chair, looking utterly drained. Well, Janus, she asked, are you still impressed with my singularity of purpose? You see what it cost me. Janus sat down near her on the edge of the bed. I thought you reconciled with Mirai. Many years later, she agreed, wearily. Such a little span of time in the world, and I wasted so much of it, estranged from the woman I loved like a daughter. She wasn't very fair to you, Janus said. You were right about how the Pyralians used religion. But she was right as well, Corinna said. There was a third way. I may not have liked her methods, but God's blood, she found it. She looked up at him, the tears glistening in her eyes. My duties in life were many, Janus, but my first duty was to the people I loved. At times, I forgot that. More often than I care to admit, in fact. And those are the only moments that I truly regret. Around them, the room changed again. It was still the field commander's quarters, but the furnishings changed, as did the lighting, which now appeared to be mid-afternoon. The image of Janus's father appeared, not the weary ghost he had seen earlier, but the man in his prime, fit and strong, and filled with a titanic sense of purpose. He stood in the loose-fitting tunic and pants that he preferred for combat training, and he had a wooden practice sword in his hand. Across from him on the practice mat, similarly dressed, was a twelve-year-old boy with white blonde hair, carrying a practice sword of his own. Attack, father ordered. The boy charged in low, fainting left, then darted to the right and slashed at father's free arm. Father parried the blow, then struck out with a straight kick, pushing his off-balance attacker to the mat. Too slow, father said. Even an ogre wouldn't have bought that feint. Again. The boy came in again, faster this time, but father swatted the blade aside with a contemptuous flick of the wrist. The boy had overcommitted to the attack, and father used his momentum to flip him over and onto the mat. 
amateurish, he said. You're better than that. Use your training. Undeterred, the boy came up for a third attack. This time he was cagey, testing father's defenses with a few quick probes, then withdrawing out of range before father could press the attack. Two, three, four times he struck, each from a different angle, each one blocked or deflected. But father's defense on his lower left side was just a little slower than anywhere else. The boy saw it and made as if to strike at father's left knee. Father turned his body, rotating the weak spot away from the boy in order to draw him in. But at the last second, the boy spun and launched the real attack, a roundhouse kick at the side of father's right knee. The kick connected solidly, making the knee pop. Father bellowed and had to put a hand to the mat to keep from falling, but he still had enough presence of mind to block the boy's follow-up attack. The wooden swords shook with the impact, one that father's heavy wrists could tolerate much better than the boy's slender ones. The boy's grip on the handle weakened, and a vicious counterblow from father made him drop it entirely. Before he could react or dance out of range, father followed up with a straight punch to the face. The wooden hilt of the sword in his hand added force to the blow, and the boy's nose erupted in blood. He fell back onto the mat, screaming. Focus past the pain and heal yourself, father growled. He suited words to actions and focused the light healing on repairing his own injured knee. The boy was still crying when he completed the healing and rose on his now mended leg. What's the matter with you? father demanded. You think they'll give you this much time on the street? It's only pain, boy. Pull yourself together and fix it. I can't, the boy sobbed. Hurts. Can't think. Gods. The gods won't help you, father retorted. You'd better start acting like a man or you're going to end up on some dangerous dinner plate. Now focus, damn you. What are you doing? Father turned to the door. Janus turned as well and saw a mother rushing in. Fear and white-hot anger mingled on her face. She knelt by the boy's side, and a glow of light surrounded her hands as she placed them over his face. When she withdrew them, twenty or thirty seconds later, the boy's nose was intact, though his face was still a mask of blood. His cries subsided into sniffles. Mother rose and turned on father with death in her eyes. What in the ninth hell is wrong with you? Father glowered at her. Lisbeth, you're interfering with the boy's training. This isn't training, it's sadism. It's going to keep him alive, father snapped. You know what's out there, what he'll have to face. Mother got right in his face. She was only a couple of centimeters shorter than father, and she looked him squarely in the eyes as she spoke. This ends right now, Asariel. If Janus still wants to be a lightbringer when he turns 18, he can apply to the academy like everyone else. Until then, you keep your god's damned hands off my son. Father's mouth twisted in disgust. You want him to abandon his heritage like you did. Mother's eyes flared with a sudden blue-white light. No, I want him to decide for himself what his heritage means— not to have the decision forced on him like it was on me. She went over and helped the boy to his feet, then led him to the door. 
I'll have my attorney contact you about the visitation rights. You won't be seeing him alone anymore. I'll see you in court. The boy looked back at father as he left. Janus could see the conflicted emotions playing out across his young face. Anger. Guilt. Fear. Longing. The boy almost said something to father, then apparently thought better of it. Janus couldn't remember what he'd been about to say. The door closed again, and father froze in place as the scene ended. Karenna put a hand on Janus's shoulder, but she remained silent, waiting. He wanted what was best for me, Janus said at last. He always did. So did your mother, Karenna said. Why do you suppose their ideas of what was best for you were so different? Janus considered the question. Father was a warrior. He saw the darkness in the world and knew we had to fight it. Knew I would have to fight it as well. And your mother? Did she believe that fighting darkness was unimportant? No, of course not, Janus said quickly. But mother picks her battles differently. Right now she's running a medical mission in Songafield. Before that, she was working for the rights of indigenous people in Fanshuar. She can use physical violence when necessary, but she prefers not to. She has a healer's heart, Karenna said. My own mother was the same way. She gestured at the practice mat in front of them, which was still stained with the boy Janus's blood. Do you think she was wrong to protect you? Janus looked at the blood, then at the frozen image of father. I resented it for a long time, he said. I blamed myself for the injury. If I'd been as good as I was supposed to be, I wouldn't have gotten hurt. Wouldn't have disappointed father. Wouldn't have made her so angry that she kept me away from him. And what do you think now? Corinna asked. Janus clenched a fist. I wouldn't treat my own agents that callously, much less a child. A good leader motivates his people with inspiration and encouragement, not terror. Father's intentions were right, but he was out of balance. It is a difficult thing, is it not? Balancing love and duty. For no particular reason he could name just then, Janus thought about Candace, and how she was taking the solstice off to go skating with her family. I suppose it is. I wonder how Candace does it. A good question. Karenna said, but one that another will have to answer, I fear. My time with you is ending. The scene around them faded, and once more they were back in Janus's quarters. Karenna placed a lemicel on its stand, and the sigils on its side began to glow once more. Look for the second spirit when the clock again strikes one, she said, and the third on the stroke of midnight. Three nights, Janus wondered. How can the magic of the solstice last for so long? But before he could ask the question, there was another flash of light, and the spirit of Karenna Hinelric vanished. And that was Stave 2. Come back next week for Stave 3, when Janus attempts to escape his quarters and is met by a free spirit of a different kind. Charles Dickens said, Procrastination is the thief of time. Collar him. So, 
Let's get a move on and see how I'm doing with my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. Ladies, gentlemen, and honored androgynes, The Lost in the Least is now finished and available for pre-order. I finished the last of the edits on Monday and put the book up on Amazon on Tuesday. It will be released on January 15th, 2018, in both ebook and paperback. If you're a patron of my Patreon campaign at the $15 level or higher, you can get an advanced reading copy right now. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. This week I also released the ebook of last year's holiday story, A Wizard Family Solstice. This novelette aired on the podcast in episodes 87 to 89, and now you can get it in text form for just 99 cents. It's on sale right now at Amazon and Smashwords. It's also on my Patreon feed as a thank you gift for all my patrons at the $3 level or higher. The rest of the week, I did more audio recording and editing, and put together a special Christmas surprise for my Patreon patrons. If you're a patron and you haven't sent me your mailing address yet, you should go ahead and do it, so I can get your present in the mail. Details are at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. With all this production work, I didn't have time to do any new writing. I'm looking forward to doing more words next week. Lastly, I have an important announcement for my Patreon subscribers. You may have heard that Patreon is changing the way that they charge their processing fees. The rollout for this new system has been really fast and sort of confusing, and it's gotten some people upset as a result. The short version is that instead of these transaction fees being paid by the creators like they used to be, they're now going to be added on to your pledge as a processing charge. Because I know that people have limits on how much they can contribute each month, I don't want you to end up having to pay more to get the same rewards from my campaign. Because of this, I've adjusted the reward tiers to take account of the new pricing structure. So, for example, if you were pledging at the $3 level before, you can now change your pledge to $2.50. With the fees added on, you'll pay a total of $2.93, and you'll still get all the same reward benefits that you did before. I'll make a few cents less from the $2.50 level, and a bit more than I used to from each of the higher levels, so it should all even out in the end. If you want more details, you can find them in a public post that I made on the Patreon page. Once again, thank you all for your generous support. You guys help make this show possible. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2011 and 2017. 
by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license, so don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.